Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday, so let's turn it over to Duff McKagan and the joke of the week. Hey, Jericho, this is uh, Duff McKagan calling you on uh, my friend's uh, cell phone. Um, I'm the home of the Detroit Red Wings and the uh, Detroit Pistons. Uh, there's no cell service here, so I'm calling you on a uh, I kind of a phone call thing. So, number one, I asked my gym trainer, I got a new gym trainer, and I asked him, uh, can you give me a split? And he goes, well, are you flexible? And I said, well, I can't do Tuesdays. Thank you. Wow. They just keep getting worse and worse and worse, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks to Duff McKagan for sending those amazing jokes. I think these ones came from uh, the middle of the Guns N' Roses tour when he was in Detroit. The fact that he takes a minute out of his uh, busy schedule to... Uh, Make us groan is well, well appreciated. Thanks to Duff, and thank you to Michael Alago and his amazing rock and roll stories. And I know what you're thinking. Who the f*** is Michael Alago? Well, funny you should think that because Michael is the subject of a new documentary called Who the f*** is That Guy? I'm going to give you a little background, but I'm going to let Michael fill you in on all the killer details. Michael Alago is an A&R guy who worked for some of the biggest record labels back in the 80s and 90s. He's the guy who signed Metallica to the first major label deal at Elektra. He also signed White Zombie to Geffen. He signed Jason Newstead's band Flotsam and Jetsam. He recommended Jason to Metallica after Cliff Burton passed away. He also uh, was the A&R guy for Fozzie for our first album in 2000. He's been there with Fozzie from the start. Michael also executive produced records for everyone from jazz great Nina Simone to the legendary Cindy Lauper to Metal Church. Uh, he's got stories about all the bands, all the labels. He'll fill you in on what it means to do A&R for labels today, uh, and that, if that even exists in the changing landscape of the music business. He'll also talk about surviving full-blown AIDS. Very, very heavy story. Michael Lago is here. The movie is great. Check it out now. It's on uh, It's on, on demand. It might even be on Netflix. Who the F is Michael Alago? Uh, and uh, who the F is Fozzie? Well, Fozzie is the band that has a top five song right now. Judas is top five on the rock radio charts in the United States. Thank you so much to all your support. I can't believe it's still growing. Uh, they think it might even make it to, uh, might even make it higher. But top five. I mean, if you're not number one, uh, top five is the next best thing. So thank you so much for that. Uh, we are, uh, I'm actually in uh, Switzerland today doing the Judas Rising European tour. And if you live in Italy, Germany, Belgium, or Austria, you still have time to come out and rock with us. The shows so far have been great. Uh, the UK was amazing last night. We did, uh, uh, Aschaffenburg in Germany, which is a great, great show. Lots of fun. So very, very cool stuff. If you want to come check us out, we are in uh, Trezzo, uh, Italy uh, tonight, which is a, uh, a Friday night. Then we are in uh, Roncada, I think is how it's pronounced, on Saturday. Rome on Sunday. Then uh, we go to Vienna for Wednesday. Munich on uh, the 15th. Essen 16. Hamburg 17. Gank 18. And then that's it. We wrap it up. we got one more show December 2nd. Uh, in Springfield, Missouri, and then we are done, man. We are done for the year, and what a year it's been for Fozzie and for Judas. Um, we're doing VIP meet and greets and pre-show mini concerts at every stop, so come join us. Go to FozzieRock.com. 
Uh, I had someone come up on stage and sing with me uh, yesterday. Uh, Rich went into the crowd yesterday. We have a lot of fun at our um, VIP meet and greets. It's unlike any other. Go to FozzyRock.com for those VIP packages and information on how to get it and also uh, to buy tickets for the show. So thank you so much. Uh, We want to see you there. And uh, Judas is still rising, but Painless is also coming up. And Painless is what we're going to play right here, right now on Talk is Jericho.
Endless just been added to the One More Rep uh, playlist on Spotify by the amazing Allison Hagendorf. Thanks to Allison, and thanks to you for checking us out, and thanks uh, for listening to Painless and for checking out the Judas album. You can buy it anywhere uh, you buy fine music, iTunes, Amazon, Best Buy, FYE, etc., etc. Hey, this is Chris Jericho inviting you to the first ever Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. Picture this rock and roll, wrestling, comedy, live podcasting, all on the open ocean from October 27th to the 31st, 2018, from Miami to Nassau. I'm bringing Hall of Fame wrestlers, some of the greatest rock and roll bands on the planet, and putting the first wrestling ring on a cruise ship ever. Don't be a stupid idiot. Make the list. Check us out at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. Does this get edited? Well, it depends. They usually just go straight through. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You have to just, uh, for something, the, the best edit I ever had, I guess I can say this now because he's been gone for a year and a half, but the best edit I was ever requested was when Lemmy uh, talked to him for about an hour and a half and we had the best time and it oh, was done. The only thing he asked me to do is, could you please uh, edit out the part where I said I still do speed? I might get in trouble. <laughs> oh, right. Like that hasn't been long documented <laughs> right, up right. to present day. Yeah, he yeah. was proud of it. Yeah. You know, I remember being backstage at the Beacon one night, and he thought I was with uh, one of my coworkers, Howard Thompson from Electra. And I said, "No, I'm by myself." And there was a whole, would you say, gaggle of That's ladies? A great word. Gaggle. Gaggle. Yeah. Because he only liked the women backstage. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys, he could give a shit who it was. Like most rockers. <laughs> so he opens up the door and he says, oh, blow, come on in, Michael. So I go in and there's this broken, large piece of glass with the longest line of something I had ever seen. And, of course, it was back in the day and I was still indulging. And he said, you take that one side and I'll take the other side and see who meets in the middle quicker. And, honey, we both met in the middle at the same time. We laughed our heads off and I think we talked for the next two hours until the women just kept thinking, okay, these two are not going to shut up. And the union guys were like, guys, it's union. You you got to pack up right now. It's like a decadent version of the lady in the trap with the with the noodle. Where they're both eating the spaghetti That's at the same right. time. That's right. A little, a little different. But yes, yes. I, I'm, I'm here with Michael Michael Lago, who uh, is actually a very old friend of mine, and I actually want to hear the story about that because I don't know if you know this. With the way that Fozzy started and the whole thing behind, we now have a number one song oh on God. Octane for the last four weeks called Judas. So you were with us at the start. That's right. And and we'll get all into this, but but. You have been around since the early 80s, and you mm-hmm. guy that helped sign Metallica, and I want to get through all that. The documentary they just made about you, who the F is that guy? Oh, we don't uh, say the F Well, word we can yet. if it slips no, no, out. I, it's going to get beeped anyway. Right, so, okay. Same uh, thing with Lars's podcast. There you go, yeah. The, the, who, there who, were lots of beeps. I'll say it once just for Who the F is that guy? The uh, journey Fabulous journey of, of Michael, Michael Lago. Lago. But until we do, I want to know, what's the story? How did you get involved with Fozzie? Because um, I remember you back oh. right off the start. Yeah. So uh, at some point, I started working at Palm Pictures. Mm-hmm. I was making a record with um, Speed Dealer from Dallas, and Jason Newstead was producing them. I was also making a record with Local H from Chicago, and Jack Douglas was producing them. And then uh, there was a gentleman who ran our office named Faisal. Uh, he at that Faisal point, Durrani. That's right. Right. Uh, he knew that I knew Johnny Z and Marsha. We had a long history since around 1983. And he said, we're signing this group called Fozzie. And I was like, you're kidding. Uh, I love Chris Jericho, and I've been to see him many times. And we met like 100 years ago because I sent you that picture recently. Right. And that picture has to be 16, 17 years old. old. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it's either – when did the first Fozzie record come it was, out? It was 2000. 
2000. Yeah, 2000. So I had just started at Palm Pictures, and I became your A&R guy. Because, Fozzie, we signed with Megaforce, but That's they were right. doing some kind of a joint promotion with, with Palm. Or joint, That's right. Joint venture. Venture. Yeah, yes, exactly. that's right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what? Because here's the funny thing about that, and uh, you know, you know how that whole thing started. We were just fooling around, and mm-hmm. Rich had a cover band called Fozzie Osborne. Local right. musicians would jam. Mm-hmm. I came and sang with them one time, and there was like a, a record. I'm not gonna say a bidding war, but like interest from record labels mm-hmm. because Chris from the WWE and Rich from Stuck Mojo were forming a band together. And then uh, we came up with the idea of making it more of like a uh, like a like a Blues Brothers, Spinal Tap, Traveling Wilburys, Alter Ego thing. And Johnny Z was he was here's what he said: Are you ready to become the next Metallica? And we're like, dude, I mean, we're playing covers. How can we be the next right. Metallica? But there was a lot of we steam on this at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, how do you market a, a cover band like the original Steel Panther? That's mm-hmm. basically what we were. Well, I mean, I think it was just more than being a cover band. You were worldwide known through WWE back then. Uh, I think it was E, maybe F, but same same thing. We know EF, yeah, EF. Right, (laughs) and uh, you know, there's always ways to you know market any type of band if you're smart. You know, there are videos, and we had that long form video. I don't even know if it ever came out. It was on MTV uh, a couple times. Like late at night, people. It was enough where we um, people saw it, and then. It became like a little bit of an underground classic. Right. It's on YouTube now. Zach Wilde's Wait, favorite movie. Get out. Yeah, it's on Me, YouTube. The entire thing? Yeah. I never even knew that. Yeah, did Fozzie un- Unleashed, Uncensored, Unknown. Oh, I'm running. Which was the I'm mo- running home after this. <laughs> the mockumentary that right, we filmed mockumentary. about the band. We did. So um, I guess we everybody just kind of did their best in uh, uh, promoting it to all different uh, areas, whether it's you know rock and roll or sports. And then because of you and who you were then and are now – it just uh, – it became like the talk of the town for a while. So unbelievable. I yeah. remember – and this is was to show you how the record industry was at the time. And you can tell me how it was even 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. But we got offered – I believe it was $75,000 from Palm mm-hmm. Records owned by, right. owned by Chris Blackwell. That's correct. Signed U2 and, and everybody else who used to be Island. So seventy five grand for an unheard, unseen mm-hmm. band. That's right. That was that's that's insane when you think about that. Well, but still, in two thousand, people were paying that kind of money, and that really is not a lot of money mm-hmm. when you think about it compared to now. <laughs> you get nothing, right? right. You're paying you know, money. I w- I just got my friend John Joseph from the Cro-Mags, the record deal with uh, Brian Slagle's Metal Blade. Sure. He has a new band called Blood Clot, and prior to that, somebody a, a indie label said, "Oh, Michael, I'll give you ten thousand dollars." And there you go. And and you have to make the record out of that. You have to do everything. I said, thank you, but no thank you. Then I went to another label and they said, we'll give you Mm $20,000. And I said, God, guys, I love you, but these aren't teenagers. These are guys, you know, and up in age a bit. And, you know, we need some money. So then I went to Brian Slagle and I said, Brian, listen, I love you. I know you love me. So this is what I want. And he said... You have, you have to be out of your mind because I asked him for $100,000 <laughs> right, for a punk band yeah. that we have no idea if they're going to sell. Yeah. Five copies or – 5,000 yeah, copies, right. maybe 10,000 mm-hmm. copies. I have no idea. So we didn't get the 100, but we got close. Wow. Five figures. 
nice. up there. And he was very generous, and I said please, and I said thank you, and we got to make the record. Everybody got a nice a bit of advance, and uh, the record came out maybe uh, I think July twenty fifth, and the guys are on the road right now, and uh, I have no idea where this is going. No, but where it's going is this, and this is a yes. great segue: <laughs> is that you um, uh, have this? If Michael Alago is calling, mm. that's why they're entertaining even this hundred thousand dollar offer figuratively, because you have a track record. Yes, that is. I'm not going to say second to none, but it is up there with one of the greatest track records of all time. Not only the bands that you discovered, but the bands that you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the documentary they made made on you, mm-hmm. um, and we're talking Metallica. We're talking Cyndi Lauper. I executive produced uh, her last two albums. Her last two albums. Uh-huh. We're talking uh, uh, Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie. Um, and the, 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 the Metal Church guys are involved. There's well, the, you know what? There's so many people. Right. There is... Metallica, Metal Church, Flotsam and Jetsam. I executive produced uh, Dawkins' uh, Beast from the East live in Japan record. Uh, in recent years, 2009, 2010, I executive produced Cindy Lauper, her dance record called Bring You to the Brink. And then we made a record called Memphis Blues. Uh, she called me up one day and said, you know, Michael, I know you know how to make... Metallica records, but you know how to make a blues album? I said, Sin, did you ever make a blues album? She said, no. I said, good. We're, we're on even ground here. And you know, all we did was we sat in her kitchen for weeks on end and went through blues anthologies and you know songs that would feel right coming from a woman's point of view. And I found her a young producer named Scott Bomar in Memphis, and he was connected to everybody, a 40-year-old guy. He was in touch with everyone from Johnny Lang to everyone in Isaac Hayes' band, uh, Al Green's band so we had like the creme de la creme musicians so we went down there and we killed it and the record got nominated for a best contemporary blues album in 2010 didn't win but like they say oh it's always nice to be nominated but I wanted that <laughs> you wanted that trophy trophy yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah so I, I, I kind of covered the waterfront with all types of artists whether it was Fozzie Cindy Lauper Nina Simone before she passed away uh, uh, white zombie. Uh, I just, you know, the funny part is, is that I was never, um, uh, not confined, but I was never restricted to one kind of music because growing up, you know, I watched all these great rock and roll shows on TV, whether it was Dick Clark's American Bandstand, Don Cornelius' Soul Train, uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, and they all had such an array of artists, whether it's Grand Funk Railroad, Aretha Franklin, Alice Cooper, Todd Rundgren, Lou Reed. I mean, all that stuff I was listening to as a young kid. And growing up in Brooklyn, uh, I loved AM radio. And AM radio... Back in the 70s, was not formatted like it is now. Like nowadays, you hear the same 20 songs 10 times a day. And back then on AM radio, we had this radio station called 77 WABC. And this one disc jockey named Dan Ingram, if he loved a song, he would just go, Instant replay. And he'd play the song over again. (laughs) And really, you could hear Aretha. You would hear Rare Earths, I Just Want to Celebrate. You'd hear Archie Bell and the Drills. You'd hear Grand Funk. You'd hear Paul Simon. You'd hear this array of artistry, and all of that informed my listening. So once I became an A&R guy in 1983, I was hip to a lot of music, and I never wanted to be that person that 
only signed heavy metal. Mm-hmm. So well, that, that would put you in a kind of a box. We're talking about like a, well, I wouldn't have mind that box, but that wasn't who I was. Well, it's just like a Clive Davis. So you're finding artists from everywhere, absolutely, to, to, to bring them to the masses. Ab- yes, you know, and and one of the reasons that I love the documentary is your relationship with Metallica at that time frame. And now you had started out. You mentioned you talk about the the, the times you spent at CBGBs and hanging mm-hmm. on the scene. You're just you were that guy that was always hanging out oh, yes. around the bands at mm-hmm. the clubs, just mm-hmm. getting to know the business. Or yeah. the people around it. Is that how you ended up becoming an AR guy? Well, back then I was a young 15 year old, 16 year old. I was running around the clubs. I have no idea, like I said in the film, why my mom let me out at night. Yeah. But I did well in school and I was just out all the time. And back then, you know, they didn't card people or anything. Um, so I was out there making friends and I always had cameras with me, uh, whether it was a little. A plastic camera in my pocket, a Kodak 110 or my Polaroid camera. Eventually, I got a 35-millimeter camera, and I just shot pictures all the time, and that's how I became friendly with the artists because once I shot the pictures, they always like, can I get a copy? And I would always go to the dark room because 35-millimeter and uh, print up pictures for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's what's uh, the big Oh, so, yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, I was out all the time, and let's see. Um, hmm. We could fast forward to uh, 1980. That's that's a good year. I was 19 years old. I was living in New York City. I was going to the School of Visual Arts. I was also working in the East Village at a pharmacy. Uh, I say this in the film as well. Um, I was out taking lunch one day. I saw a building that looked really beautiful. Uh, It was called Casa Galicia. It was a Spanish dance hall. Prior to that, it was a women's garment center union. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was soon going to be opening as, I don't remember, it, was, it said video club or dance club. Now, it's 1980, and you have to remember MTV just started as well. Uh, so I walk into the building. It's a gorgeous Art Deco building. And there's a man in the balcony. And like I said, it's like the Wizard of Oz. And he says, uh, kid, can I help you? Because we're closed. And I said, yeah, I want a job. And he was like, uh, really? Uh, I said, yes. He said, do you have a resume? I said, I do not have a resume. I go to school. And he just thought that was kind of humorous and he called me up to his office and we start talking and after a few minutes he said I'm hiring you you're going to get my lunch you're going to answer my phone and you're going to open my mail and I thought wow this 19 year old has arrived and you know what (laughs) I was in the music business I was there every night I was meeting and greeting everybody whether it was Prince or Tina Turner or Black Flag or Glenn Danzig and the Misfits I was there and that's how I everyone got to know me I got to know them and uh, the dance club that they would come in or was a venue it was a venue it was a venue so Prince would come to play yeah yeah. it was mostly a a video club we Mm -hmm. had this 25-foot screen, which was unheard of then. You know, one of the the most touching evenings we had is when Yoko called up and said, you know, I made a video with John just before he passed called Walking on Thin Ice. Can we premiere it at the club? Well, this was uh, touching and touchy, and uh, he hadn't been gone but months. So when People got wind of that. Of course, the club that night was packed. The video is extraordinary. Of course, these days you can find it on YouTube. Um, so, like I said, there was an array of artists that worked there. And uh, what I wanted to know was how to book that room. And Jerry taught me how to speak to booking agents at ICM and FBI and all these places. And I learned how to book this 1,500-seat room. And so that was... Uh, 
I was there from 1980 to 1983. I know I, I knew I wanted to move forward, and I knew that Bob Krasnow was going to restart Electra because it was in the toilet. And uh, I was also the first A&R person he hired, and he, I think he hired me also because he liked that I knew everything about uh, music from heavy metal to the Great American Songbook. And uh, he hired me, and the second band I signed, summer of 1984, was Metallica. Well, let's just for people that don't know, what is what is an A&R? A and R stands for artist. Artisan repertoire. Right. It's a department that listens to music. Without an A&R department, you don't have a record company. <laughs> and you better be successful or else you're out of a job. Mm-hmm. And you, need to, you need to bring in some big fish. Absolutely. Yes. So what did you see in Metallica in 1983 yeah. when yeah. they were just basically had Kill 'Em All come out? Kill 'Em All had just come out. They were on an independent label called Megaforce. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to see them at the Stone in San Francisco because the album really moved me. It was unlike anything that I had ever heard before. And and I went and I saw these young people who were wild on stage. They were wildly charismatic in my mind. And I thought, I want these people to be part of my life. So I go back to 75 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. I have no idea what to say to anybody about them because it was that wild and that different. It was and so was, heavy at that point oh, in time. No one had ever heard anything oh, like that. These guys were combining old school metal, thrash, punk into this one thing mm-hmm. called Metallica. But nobody else had ever done something like that. You were either a classic metal band or a hard rock band or a heavy metal band. But all of that punk was band. all still very traditional, if that's the right word. So, uh, I don't know, months passed and uh, Lars called me up and said, we're coming to New York. We're going to be part of a triple act bill at Roseland with with, um, Anthrax and Raven. Raven. And will you come see us? And I was like, absolutely. So, uh, I went to Roseland, uh, Mike Bone, a head of radio promotion, and Bob Krasnow, the chairman of Electra, uh, came to the show as well. I don't know if they remember anything, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. I lost my mind, you know, because remember, these were artists that were performing that weren't on the radio. It was all word of mouth, it was people handing out flyers, it was people handing out cassettes mm-hmm. cassettes mm-hmm. fabulous cassettes and i've said this before there was an electricity in the air when people knew that metallica were coming on stage it was the first big show in new york mm-hmm. and they blew everybody away and uh were they on last that night nope they were in the they were in the middle who was last i believe raven raven was, was I wow believe they were wow yes yes that must have been i think it was anthrax metallica raven <laughs> yeah back in the day when raven had more steam than metallica oh. They were fabulous, yeah, though. Great band, incredible. I, I love Wacko. Raven. Yeah, Wacko the drums, Mark uh, Mark Gallagher. Yeah, oh, the Gallagher, the Gallagher brothers, brothers. Of yeah. course, Absolutely. great people. Um, so you know, they blew everybody away. They blew me away. I went backstage. I locked the door and I said, "I want you people in my life. I love you." And uh, be at Electra tomorrow. They were at Electra the next day at noon. Got them beer. Got them Chinese food. And it was almost like they never left. Mm. That's how incredible it was. And I think. You know, they respected and knew about the history of Electra, and I think they liked that I was not this traditional A&R person. They thought, like, I guess they thought because we were the same age, or maybe I was two years older than them, we were all in our 20s, and they thought, oh, this crazy guy is going to be our A&R person. And they loved it, and I loved them, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. history. So when, when you're talking about that, and you mentioned, like, A&R, and it's metallic, and it's heavy, and it's, it, you know, Ride the Lightning is next. 
Was it easy to market that band uh, and to get them booked? Was there a wave or did you have to ever convince people? No, because, you know, Bob Krasnow, the chairman of Electra, let his A&R people sink or swim. And I was going to swim. And I explained Metallica to everybody. Uh, It was mandatory at some point in time when they came back to New York. Everyone in the New York office had to go see them. I think they just, you know, they were the type of band that, you know, if you worked in, in music, in the music business, you understood what was going on. Now, they were still not getting played on the radio unless it was Headbangers Ball at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, late night metal radio. So what we decided to do was just put them out on the road because that's where they were shining. Their live show was just brilliant. So uh, it was no nonsense. And uh, so we gave them money to go on the road. And we just give a lot of tour support. Oh, tons of tour support. That's the thing I believe that broke them. And then, of course, at some point in time, we can go from uh, 84, 85, we made Ride the Lightning. The beginning of 1986, when everyone heard Master of Puppets, they knew this was their masterpiece. And at some point, um, Sharon Osbourne called Q Prime and said, we want... Metallica to open the Aussie tour, and that just was madness. Mm-hmm. It really ca- it catapulted them into the stratosphere yes, yes, for real, absolutely. Because that uh, yes. took them to the mainstream, big time. Because Aussie was mainstream. Aussie was doing At shot in the point, dark. Absolutely, era, you know, fabulous, thing. great. What, what was your like, what were the guys like your relationship with the four guys in the band at the time? <laughs> well, I have to laugh because. Um, Silence on the radio. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I guess I was closest to Lars because he was the mouthpiece. Uh, He was the one always talked. He was the one who always called the record company. And um, that's just how it was. He was the mouthpiece. And whenever he was in New York, we went out all the time. You know, it's so funny. I just did his podcast. And I said to uh, him, are we going to tell the story when we both got either thrown out of Trash Bar or we left? carrying each other out, and in the middle of McDougal Street, you pulled your pants down, and he looked at his producer and said, is that on tape? And the producer said, we've been rolling. So uh, (laughs) now you've heard this uh, story twice, Lars, in two weeks. Uh, What's the question? Where are we? Where was James at the time? Uh, Yeah, I think they were all just home doing their thing. What I mean, like, was James, was he shy? Was he outgoing? Oh, James, James, James. Um, I think James was a little afraid of me uh, because I was so outgoing and he was not. Um, You know, the sad part of all this is I didn't have a lot of encounters with Cliff um, because I was East Coast, they were West Coast. I only went out there uh, if they were in the middle of making a record uh, or uh, finishing a record or doing tour dates. And uh, so I only had a little contact with him, but he was a lovely, lovely human being. He was very funny. He loved all types of music. I always uh, kidded him about those elephant bell bottoms he used to wear. And he would just tell me, shut up, just get me a beer. And he was just one of the... Loveliest people I've ever met. So, of course, in 19, September of 86, when uh, they were in Europe and uh, the bus slipped on black ice and he was killed, it was, I think, the most horrible event ever. And then in my life, because, you know, we were all in our 20s, how do you deal with the death of someone who, for them, it was their brother? For me, it was an artist or a group that I was just getting very close to because I was their point person, their A&R person. Let me ask you this. It was deep. Coming from a business standpoint, not a personal standpoint, fanboy standpoint. Yes. But from a business standpoint, when you have a band like Metallica, Mm -hmm. you know the chemistry and you Mm -hmm. know the influence that Cliff has on the sound of the band, on James, on Lars, yes. like the wise old owl. Oh, yes. When he passes away, 
were you thinking at all like, oh, fuck, like there's no way they can continue? Like, how do you continue on without Cliff, without Bon Scott? What do you do? Were you, were you well, thinking like that? I'm, uh, I think everybody thought like that. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And nobody got pressured because everyone just went home and everyone was sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, major major sadness and then uh at some point months later Lars Lars called me uh and said we're going to move forward mm-hmm. and it was great it was different right, right um and they said who do you have for us and i recommended two people Phil Cavano who was in a band called Blitzbeer at the time and i said to him you know i just signed this young band from Arizona called Flotsam and Jetsam and they have a firecracker in their band named Jason Newstead and at the same time Brian Slagle said the same thing right so that was you know, the two trusted guys that they yes, knew absolutely because Slagle was a lot, lot, lot like you came in the ground floor with Metallica oh, you guys grew together yeah I believe what it was is that he had put them on a compilation album yes yeah you know Metal Massacre that's right, right Metal Massacre and um, so at that point in time uh, Jason went for the uh, audition and he got it mm-hmm. and you know of course they tortured him for the first few years because you know what it was like um they were angry uh, that Cliff wasn't there. It was like, you're not Cliff. But he Punishing was, him. oh, absolutely, you know. And I guess when you're a young person, you don't know any better or you haven't had that kind of sorrow sure. or death before. But they never really gave themselves much time to grieve. That's right. I remember seeing That's them right. with Jason in Winnipeg. I think it was like maybe eight weeks after Cliff had passed away. It was, it was oh, early I- December. So you're talking – you think it was that oh, eight was. weeks? Oh, OK. So end of September, end of October, was, maybe 10 weeks. December 3rd. I don't remember it being that close. I have the tickets up. December wow, 3rd, wow, 1986. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, OK. So well, then there you go. Talk is Jericho. Let me ask you something else about this. Sure. I found this very, very interesting. Yes. Um, when you talked with uh, talk about metal church now, and, and, and this is probably coming as no surprise that you're gay, but in the '80s was that an issue <laughs> being gay? Because I know talking with Rob Halford, uh-huh. he was saying that he had to keep it like a secret because it might hurt his heavy metal credibility. As ridiculous as that sounds in this day and age, back then it was was it something you had kind of had to keep behind closed doors? No, okay. I never saw a closet in my life. I didn't <laughs> care about a closet. I was not in a closet, and you know, like somebody recently. I don't know if it was from the Hollywood Reporter or Variety. How did your sexuality come into play with your artists? I thought that was a ridiculous question. It is. It, it didn't is. come into my, you know, I might have thought somebody was cute, but. We've it, had that relationship for years. Absolutely. It's kind of fun, you know, taking the piss out of each other absolutely. type thing. But, yeah. but, you know, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with my fondness for the artist and how great, whether it was you, whether it was James, how great y'all were. So. That had really nothing to do with it. And, you know, the funny part is um, I don't know if it was because I had the job that I had and people had to come to me for their record deal if they wanted to be on Electra, But, you know, I never had problems with anybody. I don't think I had problems with anybody my whole life. Actually, Which is a blessing. It was cool with the uh, with Metal Church with Kurt Vanderhoof, uh-huh. who I had no idea uh, being a Metal Church fan. He, he's, 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 he said he was gay, and yes. then having you in his corner kind of gave him a little bit of solace. Absolutely, you know, it did. yeah. But but let, once again, Kurt could never say it because he's in Metal Church, and you can't have a, a it's, heavy metal was a weird place to be for that stuff. A little mm-hmm. bit of a I don't know if it's homophobic, but it was also much about you know half naked chicks on the cover of the well, albums I, and right, stuff. But right, but I also I also think you know. 
when you go to a heavy metal show, or at least back in the day, and they were young men there uh, going out with their buddies, drinking up a storm, and here I come along, and all I want to do is, like, drink with them, and they know that I'm gay, and I'm like, okay, could you take your leather jacket off? And they're like, okay, why is this guy taking this? And somebody would say, oh, you know this Michael Alago from Electron? They say, sure, I'll take my leather jacket <laughs> off. And I was like, yes, all right. So it, it was all, it's a lot of fun and games. And, you know, I think in the end, when people saw, like, this guy's really cool, none of that other Doesn't stuff matter. mattered. Doesn't matter. Not at all, yeah. my, really. My mentor in wrestling, his name is Pat Patterson, gay for, since the 50s. Who's Pat Patterson? He's Vince McMahon's right-hand man. He's in his 70s now. But I learned everything oh I know about putting together a match from Pat. Uh -huh. And, that, and the gays, that was never an issue, but it's just like, what? A, he's such a smart guy and so mm -hmm. fun. But, you know, he'd always say like, hey, you don't want me to go behind you because you might get f***ed. You know, and that sort of thing. Like, just like, you know, like, just funny shit. You but, I think, think. but I think that also just breaks down it a does. lot of stuff. Sure it does. Right? It's yes. Like it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. But, uh, uh, so uh, <laughs> I want to ask you, that you talked about Metallica and you mm -hmm. Flossum. Was there any band that you ever pursued uh, or, or that you didn't get a chance to work with? Oh, that's so funny. A lot of people ask me that. Um, I'm sure there were many. You know, my mind like my attitude about life is very black and white. If I didn't get a band, I just forgot about them. But, you know, a band that I've always loved since day one, like Metallica, is Slayer. Mm. One of the world's greatest book yeah, yeah, yeah. effing bands. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't say the F word, yeah, yeah. did I? I'm the one who's been saying it the whole okay. time. Okay, I didn't say the F word. Um, I guess Slayer, you, you could say, because I, I've loved you them. Did you pursue them? I think for a moment I did. And uh, I just thought, you know what? I'm so busy with all these other bands. You just can't have everyone in your life. And you can't overload a label with almost the same kinds of artists. So um, I just stayed a fan all these years. You know, I love seeing Gary Holt these days. Uh, he's so wonderful. He's hilarious, man. He's hilarious. And I've known him for, oh, yeah, yeah, 30 years. And uh, so I've just always been a fan, and I've always just verbally supported them. And uh, that's what, it. What about, like, so you mentioned how you're very diverse musical yep. taste. In the 80s, you're known yep. as being the Flotsam guy, the Metal Church guy, the Metal guy. When did you start spreading your wings and looking for mm. bands outside of that genre? Well, you know, I don't even know if there were any bands that I signed that weren't metal. But um, then, you know, at some point, there's an artist named Michael Feinstein who played all the cabaret rooms. And he is like, uh, he does all the great American songbook, all the great standards. So I made about five albums with him. And there was an artist who was my idol growing up. Her name was Nina Simone. And Nina Simone was arrogant um, hateful, uh, loving, beautiful, and one of a kind. She could take a Bob Dylan song, a George Harrison song, a Beatles song, and absolutely make those songs her own. And like, if you didn't know any better, you would say, wow, did this woman write these songs? Because she was pure magic. Really, she was one of these people that if you heard her, you didn't forget her. And so I, at some point in time, I got to make a recording with her. It was 1993, and it wound up being the last full-length recording uh, she ever made. She died 10 years later in February of uh, 
no, April 21st, 2003. I can't remember, believe I remember that date. But she was very dear to me. You know, it's like when people talk about if you were on a desert island and you could just have like five albums, what would those albums be? For me, I think it would only be Nina Simone's albums. I, if I could hear her voice morning, noon, and night, I just love that voice. So let's see, uh, the diversity. I guess I, um, or when I went to Geffen, I signed um, White Zombie. I signed Kane Roberts, who played with Alice Cooper, who I adore. Musclehead. Hey, watch it. Uh, I just spoke to him yesterday. He's making a new independent record that I'm kind of overseeing. Love you, Kane. Um, I always forget I was at a label called Uni, which was, I don't know if I was so drunk those two years or what, but there was a noise band from New York called Swans. And if bands played on 10, Swans played on 12. (laughs) It was unnerving. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful noise that they made. And, you know, their shows would go on on 12 for two hours. It was relentless and powerful. It was almost like um, going to church of sorts. And uh, so I signed Swans to uni, and I made the quietest record with them ever. (laughs) Uh, This great bass player named Bill Laswell, who was in a band called Material, a well-respected band in New York, produced their record. They did a version of uh, Traffic's Can't Find My Way Home on there. It's a very lush recording. And um, uh, at the time, I was friends with the photographer Robert Maplethorpe, who was dying of AIDS. And um, because this record was so quiet and we didn't want a band photo, I found this beautiful yellow calla lily that we decided we were going to put on the album because it just kind of spoke of the energy and the quietness and the beauty of the record. After that, the Swans never made a record that sounded like that again. And it's almost like this uh, underground cult classic. It's called The Burning World. You you mentioned something about uh, Robert Mapplethorpe uh, mm-hmm. dying of AIDS. Yes. In the movie, did it did it say that you had AIDS at some point in time? Oh yeah yeah. Uh, yes, right. full blown AIDS. I had no idea. Yeah, uh, maybe because uh, oh oh oh. Well, by the time you met me, I was up and about again. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's a wild thing. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't even know where to begin. You know, I drank and drugged a lot. I didn't pay attention to my life. I contracted HIV at some point in time. And in 1995, I got full-blown AIDS. And everyone thought I was going to go. I was on my sofa for about nine months, wasting away. It was awful. It was awful. I didn't think that you could actually come back from full-blown well, AIDS. you can. Well, yeah. Um, in 95, they had one pill called AZT. And my doctor, who was at the, she was at the forefront of medicine, said, don't take it. I mean, I'm di- really, I'm dying on the sofa. I mean, Rob came to see me. Eric Bogosian came to see me. Cindy, everybody came to see me. And everybody thought, he's a, he's a goner. Yeah. But I believed in my doctor. And one day she came over uh, before all her rounds at St. Vincent's. Now, St. Vincent's back then was, they had an AIDS ward. That's how huge this disease was at the time. And um, she came over to my house every morning at 5 o'clock in the morning before she did her rounds. And at one point she said, I have some pills for you. They're not FDA approved. Will you take them? And I said to her, listen, man. I'll do whatever you tell me. So these two were not FDA approved. This was FDA approved. Uh, We did a lot of intravenous medication. And nine months later, I was up. 
and I was back at Electra. I was skinny, but I was up, I was working, and I never, ever got sick again. It's a miracle of science. Absolutely. And right this minute, in 2017, uh, I go get my blood checked all the time, every six months, can't even find a trace of it in my body. It's a miracle. Is, 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 has that ever happened? Like, is, it must be a very rare thing. Well, oh, people do – if you take care of yourself, if you pay attention, if you take the medicine that is required to take, your uh, viral load, as they call it, goes down to zero and totally undetectable. And yes, that happens a lot. But wow. you have to pay attention. Sure. But like you said, that's a, that's a miracle. Did that stop you from, from drinking and, and drugs? No. You kept rolling, huh? I did. <laughs> Listen, I, after I got sick, I, after I got well, I drank. I did crack. I, I, I was a madman. I was not – I don't know why. I wasn't looking to kill myself, but that's what was happening. And finally – I don't want to say only 10 years ago, but 10 years ago, I was 47 years old, and I was sick of myself. I was sick and tired of myself. I was sick of not showing up. I was sick, sick of lying. I was sick of cheating, and I thought, I want my life back. So 10 years ago, cold turkey, I just stopped. And I don't know if it was a moment of grace. I don't know what it was, but it was a Sunday morning. It was October 21st. I don't know how I remember all these dates, 2007. And I said, you know what? Go to an AA meeting. Just go. I went 2.30 in the afternoon that day, and um, I never left. I still go five days a week. I go Monday to Friday at 9 a.m., and I feel like if that one hour in the morning is going to help set my head on straight, that for all the minutes and the years that I drank and drug, I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to go. And you sit in a room with like-minded men and women, CEOs from record companies. They say, as a saying in uh, all the 12-step meetings, um, Park Avenue to Park Bench. That's really the truth. Yeah. You know, you're shocked who you see in some of these rooms. But you know what? When you need help, you ask for help. Mm. And you can't be full of shame because the shame will kill you. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I'm up and about. I have no, I have no, like, I have no idea oh, about that. Well, because, you know, I guess I didn't talk about well, it with yeah, people. Right. You hey. know? And by the time I met you in 2000, it was already five years prior. So I was just, I didn't think about it. Sure, what sure, I sure. thought about was take your five pills in the morning and take your five pills at night. Mm. Stay healthy. And stay healthy. And so, uh, you know, I don't drink or drug anymore. Like I said, coming up, it's 10 years. Uh, I go to my meetings five days a week. I help other people who need help because all of that help was so freely given to me. And if that's what it's about, I'm going to help another right. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm all, I always help people. I, I love people. And... Um, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Well, it is what it is. Stuff. But yeah. that's one thing I said. Like, I loved watching your documentary, even if I didn't know you. And and, and you've got some great people talking. And, and one of the guys who's always awesome is, is Rob Zombie. Right. He's always amazing. <laughs> yes. But you mentioned you found White Zombie as well. Mm -hmm. And and how? Where did you? catch their vibe where'd you see that uh, a good friend of mine Daniel Ray who was in a band called the Masters of Reality oh, yeah. uh, with Chris Goss and wasn't uh, Ginger Baker in that band at some he point he did play drums <laughs> he absolutely did <laughs> crazy wonderful Ginger Baker he's got a crazy documentary oh, he beats the guy so up they, oh, yeah. breaks his nose you talk about no nonsense yeah, um, yeah so Daniel Ray he uh, was in Masters of Reality he produced uh, the Ramones he wrote Pet Cemetery for them uh, he played with Iggy said I saw this band you're gonna flip out 
So he takes me to a, 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 a bar in the East Village. It, was, it wasn't even a bar. There was a restaurant, and underneath they wanted it to be a club or a right, bar. Right, right. And there was nothing in there but a stage maybe six inches off the ground. And they were playing in the corner, in the back, in the dark, like I say in the film. And... It was wild. Mm-hmm. All those dreadlocks flying all over the place. Shauna, their bass player, was the most adorable thing I ever saw. She was hot on mm-hmm. stage. And I just thought, I love these people. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I want these people Love these life. people. Yeah. yeah. So when it was over, I introduced myself to Rob. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But he said, you know, we're going to be big. And I'm going to make films. And I believed him. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to sign you to Geffen Records. And I did. And, you know, there's a good funny story there that um, we put out the record on Geffen. Uh, The band moved to the West Coast, smart cookies that they are, because they wanted to be in the face of Geffen Records. And that's where Geffen was based, on Sunset Boulevard. So we put out the record. And at some point in time, after I've talked them up to everybody at at Geffen, I was at Geffen, I was at Electra, I was at Geffen, I was at Electra. That was 20 years right there. So I'm at Geffen. And the record stalls at 180,000 units, and everybody is worried. They're up in arms. What are we not doing for this record? Um, So we poured more money in, but a funny thing happened. A little show called Beavis and Butthead. Now, remember, that show, people couldn't get enough of those crazy guys then. They decided at some point in time that White Zombie was their favorite band, and they played that first video Morning, noon, and Thunder night. Kiss? Thunder Kiss. Wow. And you know what? That helped catapult that to a million units. Isn't it amazing that that show, because they did the exact opposite for Winger. It killed Winger when that guy Stuart, the nerd, had, was wearing a Winger shirt. And I remember the kid was Wait, like, are we talking about another show now? Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, but well, who's Stuart? Stuart was, the, uh, maybe, maybe his name wasn't Stuart, but it was the nerd. I think his name was Stuart. It's the nerdy guy that Beavis and Butthead used to make fun of. Oh, yes. Okay, okay. So, okay. As, so as the nerd, he's yeah. wearing a uh, Winger oh, shirt. Oh, great. Yeah, and it's, I think the, you know, the, the guys are wearing Metallica Slayer, right, but right, you, were, right. you were Winger. <laughs> Winger fucked. Oh, they were great. That's what I mean. So but like Winger's like, you know, Beavis yeah. and Butthead killed me. No. But that was the influence that they had. That's right. Those mm. two little cartoon characters yeah, yeah, yeah. who were the ugliest thing you ever saw. <laughs> but yes, that really yeah, helped. Think... You never you know what? You never know where promotion is gonna come right? from. You never know that one thing and sometimes it only takes that one thing that catapults the record into the friggin' stratosphere. Snowball it. Absolutely. Right. You know, uh, the documentary, was it like when you see these guys talking about you and all these positive things, how do you feel? Like, how do you feel about having a movie made about your life? Well, uh, you know, this uh, New York director named Drew Stone approached me at some point in time. uh, And I just thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What does he want? And we had a couple of lunches together and a couple of good conversations. And uh, I thought, well, he loves music as much as I love music. And then, of course, the ego takes over. And I thought, let's just do it. And he did his research about me. And, um, you know, I never, even when you don't see people for a certain amount of time, because, you know, Cindy, for instance, Cindy does her thing, I do my thing. Um, I never had bad interactions with people mm-hmm. you know i loved the artists that i worked with and they obviously loved me back and you know who i swear by in the movie is john lyden mm, He's right one, john listen man one of the smartest people i know mm-hmm. he could be 
tanked, and he will talk you underneath the table. And he knows what he's talking about. And, you know, when you think about John Lydon and the Sex Pistols, the Sex Pistols had one album out, Revolutionary. It also changed the face of rock and roll. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he does his thing. And, uh, you know, we never sold a million records with him. What was that, Public Image Limited? Public Image Limited. Did you A&R with them? Oh, of course. I signed John. Oh, you signed I signed John in 85. Mm -hmm. And we made an album called album and the cassette was called cassette and the poster was called poster all john's idea and you know that record that bill aswell also produced mm -hmm. he did my swans record steve Vai is on that record ginger baker is on mm. that record it was all session people wow. that john had on that record it's a monster of was a, it a solo album uh no it was a okay, it, pill album. everything yeah. is under the moniker pill right but it's john sure so we made that record. I knew that Virgin Ameri Virgin Overseas was not putting out Live in Tokyo and a record he made called This Is What You Want, This Is What You Get. So I put those records out as well. I have no idea right now where we're going with John, except that he's brilliant and he's great in the well, sure is. In movie. The movie. Yeah. And, you know, he's so loving and people don't know that side of him. And I guess because of the relationship that we have. For, oh, my Lord, 36 years. I met him when I did a PIL show at the Ritz, and it was a disaster. It was a riot. A chairs were thrown. Bottles were thrown. That $50,000 screen got torn down. It was on the 8 o'clock. It was on the 11 o'clock news. It was on morning news. It was a shot heard around the world. It was on every UK, the cover of every UK magazine. And we kind of laughed about it, but at the time it was no laughing matter. And, you know, through that, and John always kids me because at some point in time, uh, we had to drop him from Electra because of his deal was so expensive that it just would have cost more to keep him, knowing that he was never going to sell those million records. But I swear by John Lydon. And, you know, to this day, he always says, you dropped me for that metal band of yours, Metallica. And we have a laugh about it. But like I said, uh, 36 years later, we never really had a bad word. Mm -hmm. I love him. He loves me. And he's an extraordinary human being. I was going to ask you when you talk about a, a pill uh, being basically, you know, it's Johnny Lydon with a, with a different lineup. What did you think, like when you talk about like Rob Zombie being as big as he is today, mm -hmm. is there some, is that magic still there or did did Zombie the band have the influence or was it basically just Rob and, and a bunch of no. players? White Zombie made two albums. Right. They were a family. Mm -hmm. They were young people living in the, in the East Village, and uh, they created that sound. And at that point in time, nobody really sounded like them. And at some point, Rob just didn't want to work with them anymore. And that was, you know, yeah. fine. And so really, uh, Rob has always had that charm and charisma. And uh, he always knew what he wanted to do. And just fronting Rob Zombie with whoever is in his band is just fine because people come to see him. Right, right, And right. people love those wild, crazy horror films that he makes, <laughs> which are great. I love The Devil's yeah, Rejects. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Rob is great, yeah. really. Very talented, very smart, fun guy. Absolutely. Um, You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Something that, that you know maybe not as fun that has changed so much over the years, and we mentioned it earlier talking about Fozzie getting to me at the time was this big deal. 
uh, bands making 10 times the amount of that. How much has the record business changed since you got into yeah. it? Pros and cons. Oh, boy. Um, I was very lucky as a young 24-year-old to be in the music business in 1983. I stayed an A&R person from 1983 to 2005. Long period of time to never get fired from anywhere. <laughs> right, right. That's a blessing in yes. itself. Um, you know, back then there was a thing called artist development. And, you know, we'll use Metal Church as an example. I signed them because they made a little independent record that I think I paid $10,000 for called Metal Church. I then make a record with them with a great British producer named Mark Dodson, and we make a record called The Dark. I think that record might have sold 50,000, 60,000 records. Really? But because there was a thing called artist development, you wondered. We made, and we made a $5,000 video for a song called Watch the Children Pray. You know, that always got played in late night metal radio, Headbangers Ball, and we gave them money to go on the road. So we knew the markets that the record sold. Uh, we knew that we needed to keep them on the road. And because of artist development, our company, I don't know if policy or thoughts were, let's hope they get to 100,000 units next time. They don't do anything like, it's nothing like that anymore because ah, records are so expensive to make. Uh, I think A&R people are afraid of taking a chance. I think a lot of A&R people go to YouTube and they watch new artists on YouTube. You know, for me, I find that cold and indifferent. You know, some young band could have 100,000 hits. Yeah, them and their friends sat there all night just going <laughs> click, click, click. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But that's so two-dimensional. Technically, you could. Yes, technically, you could. And, you know, for me, that's so two-dimensional. You have to see someone and touch someone and smell someone and, and get in their face. And I want to hear your point of view. Yeah. I want to know that you're not a wallflower. I want to know that you got something to say to me. Um, so these days, there is no artist development. I think sometimes record companies try to sell things by old templates that don't work anymore. I haven't really kept up with it because I don't need to. You know, for me these days, I just uh, work on records if artists ask me or I seek out artists that I've always wanted to work with to see if they want to work with some new producer. So I just work on project by project these days. But uh, do you produce or what do you well, do? Well, I, 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 I executive produce. For gotcha, me, executive gotcha. producing means I work on the material, yeah. I find the songs, I find a producer, I put a budget together, and let's go. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you talk about the, the money because I mentioned that Metallica gig that I saw in December of '86. Yes. Wow. Metal Church was the opening band. Oh, how great! So that was like you know obviously putting them together. They Absolutely, get them label road. mates. Right? Yeah, label mates. Which yeah. uh, what, what was that? you earlier about Flotsam and Jetsam when, when you, you kind of give them the Iggy on Jason Newstead and then he goes oh yeah what are you thinking about Flotsam and Jetsam after once again what do we do right well that was definitely a what do, you, what do we do because uh, Jason wrote a lot of the songs yeah. he was like that he was the leader of the band he was the leader of the band although he wasn't the singer mm -hmm. Everyone knew about I think he wrote most Jason of the material too. Newstead, yeah. and he wrote most of the material. Uh, they quickly found another bass player. I'm not sure if it was Mike Gregory or who it was at the time. And, you know, um, good guys, great musicians. You know, nothing ever sold big. But, uh, you know, there are people who are still worthy of making records. They meet, recently made a record called Ugly. Honey, that record was damn good. <laughs> you know? So it's like... 
I don't know, you sometimes don't lose that goodness, but, you know, they just never mm-hmm. catapulted anywhere. Right, they just right. kind of stayed in the same place, and you love them if you love them, mm-hmm. and not everybody makes it big. It's about timing, the right place at the right time. It's a whole host of things, sure. but... Uh, but you know, you, I was happy that I signed them. But and, and the thing I liked about the two, and once again, talking about the documentary and the people that you have doing the interviews, it wasn't just like you know Metallica sent Lars as the representative because we've seen that in the Anvil movie. You know, Lars mm-hmm. is like the spokesman. No, no, no. Lars was in it, but so was Jason, and so was Kirk, and so was James. And James oh, yes. is not the guy that usually does those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Did you know that that you know, hey, hey Michael, we got Hetfield, or like, did you have a, a checklist of people that you wanted to try and reach out to, or did the, did oh, the, for the documentary, for the documentary, yeah, yeah, you know, we started with Lars, and I just said to Drew, you know. We can't just have Lars, mm-hmm. you know. Not th- Lars is good enough, yeah. but you know what? It's Metallica. You need the front person, mm-hmm. the mouthpiece, the spokesperson. And never mind that James is one of the greats. He really is one of the greats. And what a different animal he is these days than 1983. <laughs> I mean, really, he's so grateful and loving on stage and powerful. Uh, so, yes, there was a checklist. You know, I knew I wanted John in. I wanted Cindy. I wanted uh, one of the misfits, and I love Doyle. So Doyle's in the movie. Yeah, got Rob. And, yeah. and Rob Zombie, of course. And uh, these were all people that I played an important part in their lives and they played an important mm-hmm. part in my life and they saw me through a lot of stuff so I mean, how rare is it that well, every every big name that you worked with yes. was in that documentary there's yes. nobody I can think of that we talked about mm-hmm. that wasn't in it no except no. for Nina who passed yes, away she right. had an excuse she had a good excuse <laughs> yeah. hey uh, <laughs> yes but we talk about we speak of her lovingly sure, yeah, in the movie and uh, people are like when they see the movie they're all they're a little wowed by that segment on her because if you know nothing about her like me I didn't yeah. know Powerful, mm-hmm. very, very powerful. What was the question? Just talking about, but you're talking about Dina Simone. <laughs> no, 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 but what was your? No. I was just saying everybody big that you worked well, with well, is in the movie. You know, I think it says something about both all of us yeah, that sure, we've sure. all stayed in touch. Yeah. And, you know, I loved them; they loved me, mm-hmm. and you know, I think when it was the time to kind of uh, almost pay back, they wanted to say some nice things about me and our work experience together and our personal experiences together as you know you heard from john lyden and you heard from james hetfield mm-hmm. and definitely kirk hammett you know and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, wonderful. Yeah. it's wonderful it's wonderful well you know jason also says in the beginning of the movie if it wasn't for michael alago i don't know where if I, if i've been here yeah. right now yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. that's the truth you know when's the last time you saw those guys Face to face, besides Lars, you mentioned I this saw podcast. Lars, yeah, like about two weeks ago. How how long was it before you'd seen them? Prior that, to that, yeah. Oh, I just saw them do okay. the Nassau Coliseum and the MetLife Stadium. And, so whenever uh, they play, you're going to. I see always them. go. Yeah. You know, uh, last year I saw them in Quebec because one stadium was getting torn down. They played the last show there, and one new stadium might be like the Pepsi Arena or something mm-hmm. in Quebec City. They were. Opening up that stadium. So I went to both those shows. Um, I just saw Jason last week. He's doing a lot of painting these days. And uh, so we had a day together. We went to the Museum of Modern Art. The uh, world-famous photographer Harry Benson shot a portrait of him. And if you don't know anything about Harry, he's Scottish. He came here in 1964. And every single early Beatles picture Harry Benson took. Wow. Wow. Harry Benson goes far back as one of the first portraits he ever shot. (laughs) You're not going to believe this. Who? Winston Churchill. Wow. He must be Hello? years old. Harry is 87. Wow. A lot of curse words come out of his mouth. <laughs> he has no filter. He is charming. 
and he is world famous. Yeah, yeah, classic. Classic. So he shot Jason for some publication. I, I got to tell you this because you'll appreciate it as a music fan. Uh, you just mentioned the early Beatles. I was at Sirius today doing promotion for, for the book, uh-huh. and I ran into Sean Lennon. And oh, wow. so I was like, hey, and he was with this really tall blonde girl. And I was like, yeah, talked to him for a couple seconds. Let's take a picture, took a picture, and the blonde girl was in the middle, and he was on the end. Then I see the blonde girl again afterwards, and she's super friendly and super nice. We're talking about Anne Margaret, and I'm like thinking, who is this chick? It's Theodora Richards, Keith's daughter. Oh, my then, God. Then uh, Lucas uh, 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 Nelson comes over, Willie's son. So it's no. Willie Nelson's son, John Lennon's son, and Keith Richards' daughter all That's hanging great. around with Jericho standing on the outside going, oh, yeah, cool, man. It's right. just like talking about rock and roll oh. royalty. What yeah, a cool royalty. moment, you know? Did you take a picture? I did. I did. I love I you. One. I did. I posted that. And that Theodore, once I found out she was Keith's daughter, I was like, man, she's pretty hot. I like oh, her. Yeah. But um, as we wind down here, I just yes, want to please. talk briefly about Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. and just how great of a singer she is. Wow, Cindy's extraordinary. Mm. Cindy takes great care of herself. Cindy is a natural-born entertainer. She's, I don't know what to say about her except that. she's. What, you, how did you meet her? How did you get oh, to work uh, with her? Cindy, back in the day in the 80s when I was at the Ritz from 80 to 83, she had a band called Blue Angel. Um, I think they were on Portrait Records. But I'm not certain. And they were uh, playing around New York all the time. There was talk that there's this girl in Blue Angel named Cindy Lauper. And so we booked them a few times. And then soon after that, I believe she got her deal with Epic Records. I had nothing to do with any of that back in the early days. And uh, as we know, that first album was a monster. Girls just want to have fun worldwide. And, you know, she's kept her credibility all these years because she has stayed true to herself. And the voice is still impeccable. There was a night that she was eight months pregnant and Tina Turner asked her to open the shows at the Garden. All of a sudden, you see this woman come out, eight months pregnant. And at one point, she comes off the stage and is walking in the audience. <laughs> and people are flabbergasted. People are staring. And she's quite mm-hmm. the show person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's extraordinary. So um, after that, uh, her manager, Lisa Barbaris, was our publicist at Electra. She was our publicist at Geffen. Lisa and I stayed friends, and um, I would spend Thanksgiving with them. Cindy would always come over with her family. And so, I don't know, I guess a good uh, 12 years ago, we kind of reunited. And like I said, in 2009 and 2010, I A&R'd two of her albums, and we've just stayed friends. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's lovely. Yeah. yeah. Last question. It's a two-parter. And she still looks so beautiful. She looks great. Oh, yeah. Always had a Flawless. crush on her. Yeah. Stays out of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Top three favorite bands of all time. Oh, no. If you have to name them, and or some of them, and, and top three best rock and roll shows you've ever seen best live bands is that something you can even do you look at me like having a heart attack first concert i ever went to june 3rd 1973 (laughs) it's the last night of the billion dollar babies tour at madison square garden my cousin's boyfriend takes me i'm 13 about to turn 14 years old and i had bought that album back in the day uh, i'll try to be as short with this as possible back in the day if you have the tv guide in the center of the tv guide there was something called columbia house and you could order records for like 10 for a penny penny. but you didn't read the fine print you know what i mean i ordered alice cooper's killer now 
in retrospect, I'm thinking of this, and there was censorship even then, because when I got that album, it didn't say killer on it. If you bought it in the store, it had that child scrawl that said killer. It didn't say killer. And I think back then there was some form of censor. Sure, like that word wasn't yeah. allowed. Yeah. So I see um, Alice Cooper, uh, June of 73. I see Lou Reed, summer of... 84 at the Felt Forum, which was the small part of Madison Square Garden. It's where he made his uh, 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 live album there. Oh, gosh. Let's see. Well, I guess in 83, 84, Metallica at Roseland because it was a landmark show. Legendary. It's a legendary gig, and it's the gig that I signed them. So I guess Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, and Metallica. Yes. And then uh, the other question was artists. Oh, favorite bands. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, in no particular order. Metallica, Black Anvil, Lou Reed, Todd Rundgren, Alice Cooper, Brian Ferry, uh, Black Sabbath. Nina Simone. Nina Simone, uh, Swans, uh, (laughs) Judas Priest. um, I said Black Sabbath. Uh, I don't know. The list could just go on. Slayer, for sure. I mean, you know, it's extraordinary when you could hear them as their encore for 27 minutes do Rain in Blood. Right. That's the encore, the whole album, 27 minutes. (laughs) You got to love that stuff. So I guess that's... uh a few of the people well, that I love. Well, let me say this. If there's ever a guy that was uh, uh, deserving of a documentary that people might not have know, uh, known of, there's two for me. Shep Gordon and Michael Oh, Longo. well, you're too kind. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I, I'm, I'm, I actually sent Lars a text after watching the documentary. I said, listen, I said, oh. here's something. I just want to watch the Lago documentary. Here's something you might not know. Michael was instrumental at the beginning of Metallica's career and Fozzie's. I, I love like, it. You're kidding me. Uh-huh. So. Thank you so much for oh, all you did for my well, band first and for of music. All, you know, I haven't seen you in so I know. long. Next time we play in New York, you got to come to our show. I man. will come, and I haven't seen yes. oh. Rich Ward, who I've always loved. Yeah, and he's wonderful. So you have to send my love to him. Absolutely, give him a big hug for me. And, I will. Uh, you know, you look the same. You look so handsome, and you look so fantastic. And we can't not see each other for over deal. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, let's forget. Yeah, right, forget so it. We're deal. See this each point other. on. Thank we're shaking you. Hands shaking on hands, it. my friend. Thank you, Michael. Oh, Chris. Thank you so much. And now, Reflections with Raven. My wife says she has European roots. Personally, I still think they're great. For more Reflections with Raven, listen to The Raven Effect on the Jericho Network via the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Ravens bring the laughs to the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. $150 holds your cabin at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. You can be a part of it. We're setting sail October 27, 2018 from Miami. But if you book your cabin by January 15th, you still got a good two months to do that. You'll get a picture of me with the list. And if you book one of the first 400 cabins, there's still a few of those left, you can be a part of a special Q&A with me. And you'll be able to hang on the ship with all these incredible guests. Meet and greets, signings, rock and roll shows, live podcasts, the Ring of Honor, Sea of Honor tournament. It's all included in the price of a cabin. All inclusive. Even food, all-inclusive. You don't have to pay a dime. And you get to hang out with Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler, Mick Foley, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Rey Mysterio, Killing the Town, Cyrus is going to be there, Keeping It 100, Conan Disco, and Shane Helms, Beyond the Darkness, Raven, Brad Williams, Ron Funches, Jim Brewer, Busted Open Radio, On the Rock and Roll Side of Things, Fozzie, 
Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons, King, The Dives featuring Evan Stanley, The Dave Spivak Project, Jim Brewer's Loud and Rowdy, The Darlings of Rock and Roll Cherry Bombs, Shoot to Thrill, the world's greatest female ACDC cover band, Blues of Ozzy, the world's best Ozzy Osbourne tri- tribute band, and of course, Ring of Honor is presenting Sea of Honor aboard the ship. Matches will be happening in the middle of the ocean, on the boat, and the winner of the Sea of Honor tournament gets a Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship shot in the future, title shot in the future. The Young Bucks will be there. The villain, Marty Skrull, will be there. Cody Rhodes will be there. More will be announced soon. The Bullet Club is going to be on board. Of course, don't forget, as well, January 4th, streaming live on New Japan World, is Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega, Alpha versus Omega, in one of the biggest dream matches uh, of all time at the Tokyo Dome. If you haven't heard about that, uh, go check out my Instagram at Chris Jericho Fozzi. You'll see all the details there. Uh, before I say see ya, uh, don't forget to go to represent.com slash Fozzie. Pick up the new Fozzie shirt and help fight uh, juvenile diabetes. And uh, don't forget all the other great podcasts on the Jericho Network. Team Tiger Awesome. Start your week with a laugh. New episodes every Sunday morning. Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus. This week they talk about Jericho versus Omega. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Mitch getting the biggest stars in rock and roll every Monday. The Raven Effect. Nobody mixes pop culture and wrestling like Raven. Except for maybe our flagship show, Keeping It 100 with Conan, Disco Inferno, and uh, Sugar Shane Helms. They're my favorite podcasts of the week. And Beyond the Darkness. Delivering the best paranormal stories and interviews every weekday. Scaring the crap out of you. And they've got True Crime Tuesdays going at Patreon.com as well. For five bucks a month, you get a new True Crime episode every Tuesday with no commercials. So sign up now at Patreon.com. And coming up on Wednesday, tying in with my big special, The Legend of with Chris Jericho, which airs November 17th at 11 p.m. Eastern on the Travel Channel. We're going to talk to the American treasure hunters, real-life archaeologists who search for treasure in America, and they find them. They helped us look for the treasure of Bush Cassidy. They found a lot of crazy stuff. Do you know how much Aztec uh, treasures are buried in Utah? Great, great story about that. Real-life archaeologists, American treasure hunters, will be here on Wednesday. We'll see you then. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah! Oh, boy. Don't forget to check out Who the F is Michael Alago on demand now. You can check that out. It's a great documentary. It's worth it, and I want you to check it out. Thank you so much. We'll see you on Wednesday.